When, I, uh, when Trebek and I were married, uh, we lived the first year, um, though it seemed like about 10, in Milwaukee. Uh, I was um, a youth pastor at a church that was, um, well, let's put it this way, um, dysfunctional. <laughs> um, I only lasted about eight months there. But during that time, we had a very good friend um, who happened to be the secretary of the church. Um, she and her husband kind of adopted us. And she wrote plays every year uh, for an Easter presentation. They did about three performances. And she um, would do kind of a, a historical fiction um, centered around the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that first year, she asked me if I would play Jesus. Well, because this church was um, you know, very particular about this, um, I was to have no speaking parts, because I'm not Jesus. Um, but they wanted to do a scene of the ascension. So there were a lot of blue collar workers there and they were able to rig up a, a pulley system so that, yeah, you see it coming, so that I would stand there with a black light paint uh, where the scars should be. And um, as a screen came down like this one, a really big one though, with scenes of clouds um, a, and a smoke bomb would go up, um, I would be slowly lifted up. <laughs> the problem during rehearsal is that the pulley stuck at the top and I was breathing in sulfur smoke uh, for quite a long time. It worked better during the three performances, but um, it was an experience I'll never forget, playing Jesus. <laughs> I mentioned that because I think that is a lot different from what we heard read today about this post-Easter appearance of Jesus. You know, after the Last Supper, now we hear about the first breakfast. <laughs> and, um, and it's very interesting because in the Gospels, the resurrection is very understated. There's no big performance. I mean, think about it. In Mark's gospel, it ends with silence with terrified women who flee the tomb. In Luke's gospel, a stranger shows up with two people who are walking home to Emmaus and says, what's up? And then later in that gospel, a man who is mistaken for a gardener asks Mary, why are you crying? And, at, and just saying her name, Mary, she knows who it is. And here in John's gospel, a stranger on the lakeshore yells out, hey guys, caught anything? No bright lights, no loud trumpets, no choirs belting out he's alive, and certainly no people playing Jesus ascending with smoke bombs and slides of clouds. Jesus just does what Jesus has been doing all along and still does today. It's what he does a lot. Here he joins folks for a meal, like the one that we're going to have with him today. I mean, if you look at this text, it, it's very awkward, right? It's a very awkward reunion. They're not quite sure. They've already seen Jesus a couple of times. They're not quite sure this is the Lord right away. But here it is, seven disciples go back to fishing business. You know, maybe they, maybe they thought, you know, 
Yeah, we saw him a couple times. It was a good gig. A good gig while it lasted. And now let's just go back to the old familiar, back to what we know how really to do. I mean, if you think about it, the church is really getting off to a very slow start in this story. But first, Jesus says, we've got to take care of some old business. Some business with Peter. Peter, who's like us all, who needed restoration and forgiveness and a fresh start. I mean, you know, Peter's failures, think about it. Peter's failures aren't just that three-time denial. Remember the time when he said, no way, Lord. And Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. I am going to Jerusalem to die. And another time when he said, not my feet, Lord. And Jesus has to say, no feet, no fellowship. And another time when he said, I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus basically said, oh, really? And later, later, Paul will oppose Peter with regard to the question about the Gentiles because as Paul will write in Galatians 2.11, Peter was clearly in the wrong. And now, once more. I mean, Jesus said in John chapter 20 to the disciples, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. It appears that from the text that after that, Peter said, hey guys, let's just go fishing. And there they are out in the lake, not seeming to be sent in the same way that the Father sent the Son. And, and, and failing once again, they're not catching any fish. Now, now let's cut them some slack. Maybe they needed some fish to eat. Maybe they needed to keep making a living. But in one sense, they're failing once again. And Peter led the crowd. But isn't it interesting because this becomes the occasion for Jesus, and this is very clear in the text, for Jesus to reveal himself. Jesus reveals himself to failing, disappointed, unsucceeding disciples. I mean, he's used to this after three years with these guys. <laughs> they have a hard time getting it but he keeps coming back. And now Jesus takes Peter aside and asks Peter if he loves Jesus more than these other disciples do. There's a lot of debate about the word love here because you may know that it switches from agape to phileo, uh, from self-giving love as we think about it to friendship love. But most scholars, I think, are right today. There's really no difference in these words. If you do a word study in the Greek, you'll find that these words are used rather interchangeably in the New Testament. But I think it's more significant that he, he asks Peter three times, do you love me? Maybe to counter the denial three times. I mean, think about it. Jesus set up a little campfire and that's exactly the ambiance that Peter experienced when he denied Jesus. And then Peter seems to get it. Because he finally says, you know I love you. 
No more boastful claims. I mean, you remember that time when he did say to Jesus, I'm going to go with you, I'm going to die with you. And, and Jesus had said, look, I'm going to meet you guys in Galilee, just as I promised. And here he is in Galilee. And I think Jesus could say to Peter, I kept my promise, you didn't keep yours. But listen to Peter's last reply. You know everything, Lord. You know that I love you. It's as if he's saying, I can't trust my own convictions. I can't trust my conscience anymore, Lord. I don't trust myself, but I do appeal to your knowledge of me because you know me better than I know myself. You know my heart better than I do. And Jesus didn't give up on Peter because he says, I, okay, Show your love for me by taking charge of my flock. Tend my sheep, feed my sheep, keep my sheep. And that's just like Jesus, isn't it? I mean, the power of Jesus isn't some razzle-dazzle, spectacular, as the world measures spectacular event. It's just a quiet, all right, Peter, if you love me, then just feed my sheep. And then he says, follow me. You know what's interesting in this Revelation passage that we heard read? That just before that passage, the Lion of Judah is set up to open the seals. But then the Lamb appears. The Lamb who's slain by lions. It's the slam lane in our text who conquers who takes the power, the wealth, the wisdom, the strength, the honor, the glory, the blessing. It's not the lion, it's the lamb who was slain. And so Jesus says to Peter, Peter, tend my sheep, tend my lambs, and follow me. It's exactly what he told Peter the first time that they met, right? The first time they met and they had the same sort of fishing expedition, same sort of problem. Jesus tells them where to catch the fish. But this time, this time, instead of telling him to follow me after that catch a fish in that way, he, he, he says it after a rather cryptic comment about the way that Peter is going to suffer and die. You know, I like Jesus because he doesn't, he doesn't engage in any false advertising. This is no health and wealth gospel. This is no gospel that says, you know, you're going to just uh, get all that you can in terms of worldly possessions. This is no prosperity gospel. In fact, Jesus had alluded this to Peter earlier in John 13 when he said, where I'm going, Peter, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later on. And so when Jesus is telling Peter to follow me, he's saying to Peter, Peter, in the future, you can count on a cross. If you want to follow Jesus, you can count on a cross. Following Jesus means that it, it is more the way that we lose than the way that we win that brings greater glory to God. In fact, in John's gospel, John makes it clear that it's when Jesus is on the cross that the glory of God is revealed. It's more the way that we lose than the way that we win that reveals the glory of God. 
What's going on here in this passage is kind of an ordination service for Peter. But I was thinking about that because that's what our baptisms are. Our baptisms are ordination for service because we're baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus. In other words, we're baptized to follow him to the cross and then to victory. Baptized to feed his sheep. And so what God continues to do today is exactly what he was doing in this story. God enlists problematic human beings, sin-marred but sincerely repentant human beings, because that's the kind of God we worship. If we sincerely love Jesus, even if that's been a lackluster performance in the past, like Peter's, if we sincerely love Jesus, we are qualified to be called into his service. In the end, the story reminds us that most often the risen Jesus just quietly shows up, forgives failures, recognizes limitations, and in grace puts us to work. In fact, Jesus simply returns Peter to the beginning of his call, follow me. He comes back to those who let him down. And just as he did a few years earlier, he ordains them once again to follow him for his service. There's a guy named James Davison Hunter. He teaches at University of Virginia. He wrote a book a while back called How to Change the World. And he argues in that book that we should be faithfully present. He argues that the Christian posture is not to defend against the world. It's not to be relevant to the world. It's not to seek purity from the culture. He says we're just called to faithful presence. Just faithful presence. To fully participate in every aspect of the culture as deeply formed Christians who also participate in the alternative community called church. And that means embodying a sacrificial love for our neighbors. And so we show love for Jesus just by being faithfully present to feed his sheep as we follow him. Feed my lambs. Jesus doesn't tell Peter, Jesus doesn't tell Peter, win the Mediterranean world. He just says, give good food to the people whom I will bring into the fold. You know, you can kill God. But God is still going to show up in surprising ways. And God asks us to do the same. To show up, to be faithfully present in whatever and wherever God calls us to follow. Even as the sin-marred, repentant people that we are. There's a, a friend of mine who lives in Washington State who's about 80 years old and um, comes down on business trips to join us at our table in the dining room for my brews and book discussion group. He, Jerry has, is a white-collar criminal. He was in prison for white-collar crime. And so in his retirement, he's gotten involved in prison ministry. 
And he's gotten some of us um, to begin to write letters to one man in particular who's in prison for life for murder. He was involved in a murder with two other people. The other two plead, plea bargained and got out early. He chose not to do that and is in for life. He was the worst of all prisoners, the worst, terrible. His daughter, who was in her teens, um, heard about Bible camp. She didn't know what it was, but she knew she wanted to go. And so a church sponsored her and she went and she gave her life to Christ and she came back and God used her to lead her father to Christ. He has now become the model prisoner. And so I started corresponding with him just before Christmas, sent him a Christmas card, I sent him an Easter card, wrote him some encouraging, I hope encouraging words. And his first letter back to me, he wrote this. I asked myself, what is wrong with people today? And then I paused to realize that I am that person. I was party to multiple murders. I did crimes for no valid reason. Senseless destruction of human lives for insignificant personal financial gain. Totally delusional about life and human value. And now I sit squarely centered in the filthy human landfill of disposed youth inundated with confusion, suffering, and pain. This is the mission field our glorious Lord prepared me for. And I embrace the challenge and responsibility of being a vessel for our Lord to assist in the healing, building foundations, and keeping safe the young lost, broken souls that I encounter. It is an honor and privilege to have been chosen by him. May our Lord smother you and yours with overwhelming blessings of grace and peace. You know, sometimes God just shows up, takes our failures, takes our brokenness, and quietly transforms the world. And he only asks, do you love me? Then feed my lambs. If it had worked today, I was gonna show you a video, but you can go find it yourself. It's a YouTube video. It's about a woman named, uh, you may have heard of her, Nadia Boltz Weber. Uh, we discussed one of her books in the Bruzen book group, Accidental Saints. She's the founding pastor of the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, Colorado. And the video you can watch if you go to YouTube, it's her story. She's a Lutheran pastor. Don't hold that against her. She has tats all up and down her arm. And she tells the story of her life being promiscuous, being an alcoholic, being a drug addict, and intending to die by the age of 30. Until she met this guy who was a Lutheran pastor. And he was concerned about social justice. And then she found out he was concerned because he was a Christian. And she asked him, are you a unicorn? She didn't understand how those could go together. So she went to the Lutheran liturgy with him and it changed her life. So at the end of her talk to 
a Superdome-filled Superdome filled stadium of ELCA youth, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America youth. That in itself is a miracle. <laughs> she wraps up her story by saying that, she sh that there were people who said she shouldn't have talked to those youth that day because of her past. And because she also, she says, swears like a truck driver still. And she says, you know what, they're right. I shouldn't be up here talking to you. But that's the kind of God that we serve. And then she gives a stem winder at the end and reminds those kids that the God we've talked about this morning is exactly the God who takes us in our brokenness and our failures. And because he is the God who was raised from the dead, uses even that for his glory. And so that's what it means to be a follower of the crucified and risen Christ. I want to end with a prayer. This is a prayer of Evelyn Underhills. And then lead us into just a time of reflection. Let's pray. Lord, teach me to kneel in spirit before all whom it is my privilege to serve because they are your children. To look for the family likeness, however homely or unspiritual that appearance of those to whom I am sent, however lowly my sphere of service and their need may be. I will be grateful for everything you give me to do, willing to use very simple things as the instruments of love, the towel and the basin, the cup and plate and loaf, willing to do the most menial duties for the sake of love. Come, Lord, come with me, see with my eyes, hear with my ears, think with my mind, love with my heart in all the situations of my life. Work with my hands, my strength. Take, cleanse, possess, inhabit my will, my understanding, my love. Take me where you will to do what you will in your way. For where you are, there would your servant be. Amen. <laughs>